Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to part one of our countdown of the top 10 episodes of 2022. It's been another great year for the podcast with thousands and thousands of downloads and a growing weekly audience. With what I believe is a great mix of guests from different sectors and backgrounds, all with a unique story to tell about their personal and professional journeys and their definition of success. Since the launch of this podcast in late 2019, we've had over 150 guests and it's been a great pleasure and privilege to talk to every one of them. Whether it's gaining new insights and knowledge into a specific role or sector, discussing pertinent issues or simply opening up and connecting over shared values and experiences, recording this podcast has become a highlight of my week and I'm already really excited about the guests we've got lined up to meet in 2023. For now though, it's a look back at 2022's most popular episodes, starting from number 10. So in at number 10 is Joe Coleman. And if the name Joe Coleman immediately reminds you of the mustard, you'd be exactly on the right path. Joe is part of the Coleman mustard family. In 1995, Joe's grandfather, Sir Michael Coleman, established Summerdown Farm in Hampshire to grow its signature Black Mitchman Mint. From its over 100 acres of mint, the farm now produces an incredible variety of products from peppermint oil and bath products to chocolates and tea. Joe is head of sales and marketing at Summerdown and I was really interested in getting his perspectives on growing up and working in the Coleman family, as well as a long-term relationship formed with the staff and the incredible sustainability measures in place on the farm. Here are some of the standout moments. Well, we, we're, we're, a, we're a family business uh, and farm. I mean, my, the, the, the farm Summerdown has been kind of uh, a, with my family for close to 100 years and uh, had always been a, a kind of a very standard English arable um, farm and we, we still do a lot of, of, of arable farming but about 30 odd years ago my, my grandfather who was, was coming to the, the end of his career um, in um, his kind of first place of work decided that um, he wanted to do something different with his retirement and after realizing he could perfect his golf swing he got a bit bored and and, and started exploring um, the, the history of, of peppermint um, in the UK and, and fell in love with the um, the the romance and the story of Black Mitcham peppermint, which was a um, a very widely grown mint down in in, in South London in Mitcham, in uh, uh, just outside of Surrey, for hundreds of years, 
Uh, and then during the, the wars, uh, we turned all of English agriculture away from uh, useless things like peppermint into useful mm -hmm. things like wheat and oats and, and onions and potatoes. Uh, and so uh, Britain, which had been the, the home of peppermint, um, suddenly found itself growing kind of virtually uh, nothing. I mean, at the Peppermint in, in French is menthe anglaise, mm. it is English mint. Uh, it, it, peppermint is where the Romans first found, uh, England's where the Romans first found peppermint. And so uh, this whole kind of romantic backstory of, of peppermint led my grandfather to um, explore what, what mint was growing was looking like and found that Black Mitcham had actually been taken by some farmers uh, in um, North West America, uh, Washington and, and, and Oregon. And so we we went over, we, we got some cuttings from some kind farmers uh, and we brought some back to, to our farm in, in Hampshire and uh, started with just a few cuttings which we propagated in, in my grandparents' kitchen wow. garden uh, before planting that into the corner of one of our fields about the size of, of half a tennis court. And it, it, it's from that very first planting that we now grow around 100 acres of black mitch and peppermint um, across our farm. Um, your family is part of the Coleman um, family, part of that, you know, Coleman mustard kind of yeah. business empire, dynasty, whatever you may want to call it. <laughs> um, and perhaps could we just, for our listeners, just play how that played out into the early yeah, parts of, of Spam and the story, just to put it into context, Joe? Yeah, so I, I suppose, you know, my, my family have always been drawn to um, to kind of bold flavours. Uh, mm. So, you know, go back a few hundred years, it was it was mustard. And so um, uh, my great, 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 great grandfather uh, was growing mustard in in uh, in Norfolk outside of Norwich and um, developed the Coleman's um, brand. And, uh, you know, for its time, Coleman's had a, a, a really um, interesting kind of backstory, both from the um, branding of a product, so putting marketing on their tins. Mm. People really didn't do that. The way that they um, they positioned um, uh, their mustard uh, was a, a really interesting marketing endeavor. But but for me, the heritage that I'm, I'm so proud of is that it was part of that Quaker revolution in Victorian England where uh, industries, so the Cadbury's and the Roundtree's and, and the Coleman's and families like that who were running these interesting businesses, they saw their uh, one of their primary duties is to care for their staff. And so there were almshouses and um, uh, homes for their, their team, that there was a um, proper education, there was um, care for their children, there was health care for, for mm -hmm. everyone who was connected to the business. And it's a it, it's something that you know carried through for, for many, many years within uh, within Coleman's. And so my, my grandfather um, uh, was the last member of the family to run the business. So he was chairman of the, the, the Coleman um, business uh, up until the 1990s, mid 1990s, and saw very sensibly the way the wind was going that you, you couldn't run a, a business like Reckoning Coleman no. which had um, hundreds of, of, of products in, in, in dozens of categories as a family business. And so he um, he saw his his role as being the, the last one to steer um, the business as a family business toward being what it is today, which um, is, you know, the, the Coleman's brand, I think, is owned by Unilever. And you've got mm. Reckon and Ben Kaiser um, holding the rest of the, the categories. And um, it was a very good decision. And, and that enabled uh, my, my grandfather then to turn his attention from his day job, which was uh, you know, running a, a fairly large business, um, to back to the farm and um, uh, started to think, what would it look like to do um, uh, a large uh, innovation uh, on the farm to set up the, uh, the, the farming operation and the business for the generations to come? that you know we as a, a family see ourselves as stewards um, of the land mm. it's it's not ours it was you know 
the, the farm was um, mentioned and referenced in the Doomsday Book. So it's been around for, for, for a long old while as a farm wow. in, in England. And yeah. I know that it's going to last a lot longer than, than I'm around for. And so we are, we're merely custodians for, for the time being. And that, that gives us um, uh, actually a huge uh, freedom to make the decisions around um, uh, what is it that we're trying to do. We're not trying to impress people. We're not trying to do things to, um, to, to kind of win favour. We're, we're trying to create something which enables uh, both the land and everyone connected with the land to, to flourish and to, to, to thrive and see that continue for generations to come. Was there mm. always an expectation that you were going to come into the farm and in the family business? Was it a sort of done deal? Or I, I suppose did you have choice? Who, <laughs> I suppose it depends on who, who you ask. I, for me, no. Um, that there was never. I never felt a um, an expectation that this that I had to do this, and there would be kind of I'd be letting everyone down terribly if I I didn't do this. And so you know, as we say, we'll, we'll probably touch on a little bit about my strange kind of back kind of career to date. But it it was never a um, a, a, a done deal. And so when actually I joined the business some um, six years ago, my grandfather was very clear. I was I was joining on on probation. I had to prove myself mm. uh, that this uh, I, I had to kind of come in and and um, start, you know, um, at the beginning and, and prove that I had what it took to um, slowly take on from him a few more of the responsibilities. It's, it's taken, you know, six years and he's starting to, to let me have a, a little bit more of a <laughs> of an input, which is very kind of him. But, you know, he rightly reminds me that he um, he has quite a lot of experience. And uh, uh, so, yeah, there was no expectation. And I think that, again, goes back to the kind of family values that, that, that we have, um, which kind of wonderfully is, is rooted in love. And so it's mm. it's. Uh, it's a real joy to be able to work with 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 my grandfather and and that being a loving relationship and realizing that actually for for a lot of the time we don't really talk about love in in business but it's it's something that I I kind of think quite a lot about yeah. I, I not only from a you know a subjective I want my customers to love what we create because I really think what we do is is exceptional and I really really am proud of, of what we we create from the farm but if if we're not doing it um, uh, we love ourselves and we just see it as a, either a means to an end or a, a commodity mm. in and of itself, uh, you very quickly lose the heart. And there's, there's something just spectacular about um, the, the kind of natural environment um, that you can't but just sometimes stop and go, you know, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is beautiful. You know, in terms of both the business and in terms of sustainability, mm. you know, what's your vision for Summerdown for say the next 10 years? Uh, 10 years is too short. I'm, I'm thinking 50 years, Warren. I'm, I'm kind oh, okay. of... I'm, <laughs> You're thinking true legacy. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're working working through a kind of a, a, a 50 year kind of plan at the moment. Um, but I'd, I'd say that, um, you know, Summerdown at its core is a regenerative business where where growth for us is never at the expense of of, of people or place. And, mm. and you know, we, we think very specifically about place because um, in, in B Corp talk, there's the, the three P's of profit, people, planet. Yeah. Uh, and so are you environmentally friendly? Are you doing it well with people? And are you a functioning business generating yeah. a profit? Um, for, for me, it's it, it's not, um, you know, planet is, is vitally important, but I am so very blessed to have a little postage stamp corner of of the planet that that we are directly responsible for and so my uh, my my duty and the responsibility we have at summerdown is to care specifically for this specific place and i think we we live in a world now which is trying to erode our 
um, uh, through, I think, uh, overconsumption, trying to erode our um, connection both to take place and time, that we want to be moving far faster than is, is, is actually doable. And we want to be moving to different places all, all the time. Yeah. And actually, the, the farm is a wonderful grounder that we are, we are placed um, both kind of uh, through time and place in, in uh, space in, in a very specific place. And so it's, it's the regenerative principles for our, our businesses that growth will never be at the expense of, of the people we work with or the place that we're working um, on. Coming in at number nine is Ben Ashton, who co-founded the Good Oaks Home Care when he was just 22. The company celebrated its 10th anniversary in October 2021, and in that decade, it has achieved incredible growth. Its year one turnover of £5,000 has now become almost £10 million, and it employs nearly 500 team members across 14 franchised operations. Good Oaks is also the first in its sector to go carbon neutral. Amongst other things in our conversation, I wanted to know from Ben what it's like to start a business at such a young age, find out what he's done to achieve such phenomenal growth and understand more about franchising. Ben also had some wonderful things to say about the value of empathy. So yeah, starting at 22, I think really was, it was a case of, you don't know what you don't know at that age. I think, you know, there's a lot of youthful exuberance then. And, you know, at at that point, I just felt like I could probably turn my hand to to whatever needed doing. Yeah. Um, Would you say that was naivety or braver? uh, There's a fine line, isn't there, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, A a bit of both, definitely. I think, you know, over the years, I think the the thing that I've definitely learned is actually how complex it is um, to run a business in this sector or run any business, really. Yeah. yeah, I, I have. I think when you're looking at it from, you know, I, so basically, t- just to take you back to the start, I um, met the co-founder of the business. We both stumbled into home care. So okay. for me, it was straight out of university. Um, I was saving money to go traveling. Okay. I applied for all the jobs under the sun. And the one that got back to me was care. Um, the interview was basically, do you have a car? Do you have a criminal record? Yes and no, or, or no and yes, depending on which way around that is. Um, and, you know, I said, because it's my first ever job interview, so I said, are there, you know, are there many other candidates for the role? And she said, oh, no, you've got the job. Like, you've got a <laughs> you pulse. Passed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you turned up. So You've done the yes and no and you've got a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Here's your uniform. Um, so it was quite a, a sort of rude awakening into, into the world of care and... Yeah, that's where, where I met the co-founder and, and that's where things really, we, you know, we got talking about um, how, how we sort of perceived the role to be and, and the company we worked for was a great example of how not to run a care company. Okay. Um, and I think, yeah, going back to that sort of youthful exuberance, it's always much easier from the outside. It looks a lot simpler than it sometimes is, I think. Very eloquently, you do bring that kind of owner, manager, entrepreneurial passion to each mm. and every hub or location, don't you? You do, you do, absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, I think. Oh man, I, I I don't think I could go down the route of having um, you know directly owning fifteen, twenty, thirty-five offices, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Is it? Do you think that's a bit of you and Davies, your business partners' kind of mentality? Is actually you like what you've got, you're passionate about what you've got. And therefore wanted to grow, but as you say, you're not into managing 
hundreds of people directly through layers and layers of management. Yeah, I think what we really enjoy is, is enabling people to to make us, you know, to help them in their own success, I think. Yeah. So um, I really like working with other business owners um, and, and we always take quite a, a lot of franchisors can be quite top down, you know, yeah. saying this is the cookie cutter model, you need yeah. to do this um, and and basically that's it. We a bit more collaborative than that. It's yeah. more of a partnership. We call them franchise partners. Um, and I think that's what we really enjoy is that collaboration and sort of working together and actually sort of solving problems as a network yeah. instead of just, you know, diktats from yeah. online, really. You know, what, how do you go and sell a market your care provision because again most care businesses do rely they do some of that but they rely yeah. on these big weighty contracts to provide a lot of their income yeah so how do you you know how do you go about selling and marketing the business well if you buy a franchise i'll tell you but uh, yeah. um, <laughs> these are the secrets <laughs> yeah, exactly i think really it's about we're, we're not always marketing to the end user yeah um so our, our clients are almost, by definition, often you know quite sort of vulnerable and isolated, yeah. and are maybe not the people making the decisions about their yeah. own their care. So, yeah, it's about marketing to the decision makers, I guess, whether that's professional decision makers or personal decision makers. Yeah, you yeah. know, the grown up sons and daughters of people needing care, and you know, talking to them in, in a way that they understand, in a way that's really reassuring, because I think. Most people know nothing about the care sector and it's something that people don't really want to know about until they need it. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly it's sort of... Um, and, and people often wait until the last possible moment to organise care. You yeah. know, they, they try and Because everybody resists or don't want to or they want to provide the support for their family exactly. member and all of that. And... Absolutely. And there's a lot of guilt around that yeah. sometimes for, for, you know, for family members that they can't step up and they've got other responsibilities. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's an, it's a sort of delicate message to get across, really. Yeah. But I think yeah, reassurance and um, responsiveness is also really important. So you're 32 now. It's been a 10 year journey for you and for Darius, your co-founder. How have you and he changed in this 10 year period? Good question. I think I've become just. Yeah, a lot less sure about everything, if I can put it like that. Okay. In that, I think I, I I've sort of become more and more aware of how complicated everything is in life, in business, in care, in whatever sector. You know, I, I, and I, and I think always sort of seeing the the other side of the coin or the argument. You know, so yeah. I think when you're especially when you're younger, everything's quite black and white. You can you know make decisions and go for it. I think now it feels sort of. Fifty Shades of Grey, really. Yeah. It's quite hard to sort of pick um, sort of definitive, correct answers. There seems to be a lot of. So I think that's something that I've that's changed for me is being more aware of, of just the complexity. Is that um, just life and experience? Do you think? And that little bit of I'm, I'm sorry to use the word, but naivety at twenty two, yeah. it's rubbed away, and it's just right. Okay, I get the big picture now. Yes, I think that. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Really, I think combination of life and and sort of yeah. work does that to you doesn't it definitely um yeah I, I think fundamentally we've you know 10 years is a long time to be in partnership with yeah. someone um and fundamentally I, I don't think we've fundamentally changed i think we're both more or less the same 
that you know people that we we yeah. started off as. A bit more grey hair, you know. Yeah. People used to say, "Oh, you're or at least you got hair." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, um, yeah. People used to say, you know, "Oh, you're young to have a care company, or you yeah. to have a company," and no one says that to me anymore. No, I've aged beyond my years. In terms of your own personal values, what do you think of the values that are, and principles that are most important to you? And do you think you've been able to reflect them into the business? Good question. I think, yeah, so personally, in terms of my values, I think a big one for me is, is empathy and, and always trying to understand what, you know, the person across from me or, you know, I'm talking to, understanding their perspective on, on things, you know, what's their worldview, where are they coming at this conversation from, really? Yeah. Um, and I think that, that's really an important skill. And I think one that actually... It just seems to be less and less empathy these days. If you go on Twitter, there's very limited yeah. empathy happening there. Everything's very binary, and you know, yeah, you're always it's black or white. It is it's and a crazy you, world. Exactly, and if people don't agree with you, they're sort of bad yeah. people. Yeah, they rant and rave, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Control. So I think empathy is really important, uh, and you know, respect as well. Just having that sort of underlying respect for yeah. for people as well, even if they don't have the same views or values as you. I think yeah. it's important to have that sort of baseline level. And I think both of those actually are, we, we have put into our company values as well. So yeah. they are sort of stated there as well. So Definitely. yeah. Yeah. It's great if you can join those two things up, isn't it? It is. Yes. And it makes sort of, um, it makes it a nicer place to work in it. If people, yeah. if you're, um, you know, we, we sort of have values-based recruitment where we're, we're looking for, you know, people have to give us you know, horrible questions about times that they, they, yeah. you know, demonstrated those values. Um, but if you're, you know, recruiting people that share those values, it just makes it a much nicer yeah. place to be and, and work. And you know, yeah. number eight in our countdown is Ty Temmel. Definitely, what you defined as a serial entrepreneur. He has started, co-founded, and is director of many different businesses in many different sectors. For any of you listening who runs just one business, you know how incredibly demanding on your time and energy it can be. So I was curious to know and hear how Ty manages his schedule and get some insight into the immense drive and ambition that he has. Ty also recognises the responsibility an entrepreneur has to their community and is an ambassador and fundraiser for the mental health charity Dorset Mind. Ty is an inspiring individual who thinks a lot not only about business, but life and purpose in general. Where did your entrepreneurial journey begin? Because there's a lot of ventures. Which was the one that started it? And where did that journey really begin for you, Ty? I would probably have to say all I've known my whole life is my dad working for himself. Okay. So he was an immigrant. He moved here years ago to give me a better life from Turkey. Uh, I was born in Turkey. I always tell people I was born in London. Okay. Because it changes their dynamic of me. But we'll go on to that later. Okay. So... I came to England when I was two, okay. so I don't know any different. So no. We lived in London for a bit and we moved down south, but all he ever did was work for himself and my mum. So okay. I guess subliminally, it was programmed into me that you grow up and you set a business up. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I never sort of saw the there journey was no of different road. education, still... a career, okay. a development, retirement, pension. I've not yeah. seen that with any of my family. Yeah. Um, so it started very, very young, very young. Me and dad um, used to play chess a lot as a kid and he would use that to teach me life lessons. So 
he would set up scenarios on a chessboard and try and he's a very profound guy an incredible guy talks in like proverbs all the time if you know what I mean so it's like one of those like and I remember being a kid thinking what is this guy on about like I'm (laughs) (laughs) but now like I look back and 99% of the decisions I make that I think an intuition or instinct are actually his programming Uh, from a very young age Um, but anyway so my first entrepreneurial thing probably started at school okay Um, I I got into a lot of trouble because my dad used to go to bookers and macro and buy stock for his little kebab van that he had that he'd park around and they'd shoo him on because he had no permission so I started going with him and I used to love it all the aisles of all the sweets and the drinks and I used to buy penny sweets and cans of coke and this sort of stuff put them in my backpack and take them to school it's a real hustling from yeah. a young age. And I I grew it so much. I guess now they call that network marketing. Yeah. Like herbal life, etc. Yes. But I did it when that wasn't a thing. So what I did is I had got a male and a female in every class in every year to sell for me. <laughs> Pyramid selling. Yeah, basically, yeah. I didn't know what that was. I was, yeah, but a, it's I true. was a kid. Um, <laughs> so they would take this can of Coke and sell it and they would get would take the cost out and they would get X and I would get X. Yeah. So I was sat, eventually sat with this small little empire yeah. and everyone was selling, but I was getting a cut of everything without actually now having to sell. Okay. I was just wholesaling. I was bringing the goods in, selling. Anyway, the teachers called my dad in and they, <laughs> they had a go at him and they said, Ali, his name's Ali. They said, Ali, look, we don't know what's normal where you guys come from. This was yeah. years ago, obviously but you can't be doing this. Your son set up a cartel in the school. <laughs> the tuck shop's taking a hit. You know, like, <laughs> they were going mad saying, you can't be doing this, you can't be doing this. Um, so that was probably my, and my dad actually had a go at me there in front of the teacher in English. Okay. And I remember when we left the room and he was like holding my hand walking down the thing. He was like, in Turkish, he said, son, ignore everything I said in there. He said, never change. He said, yeah. that, keep going as you're going. Ignore this. They want you to sit and fit into a box. Yeah. You keep doing what comply. Yes, you yeah. keep doing what you're doing because you've got something. Yeah. I borrowed a lot. I borrowed from friends. I borrowed from unsavory people. I borrowed from whoever I needed to borrow from because I truly believed to make that opportunity. I could make that opportunity work. Yeah. And I've always been brave and I've always been bold in this scenario. So, do you think you make these decisions based on intuition and gut? Million dollar question. Yes, there's an element. At the time, I would have said no because I was young and dumb and and, and thought you I was just, I was so confident and I thought I could do anything. Take the world on. Yes, I'll take and the world on. on. And as as you know, as we get older and as we get more aware, we get filled with more doubt. Yeah. In life, we realise consequences. One, it? It's very weird because just quickly touching on like meditation or reading or journaling or all these things I do a lot of. The more aware I get, the more ignorant I wish I was. Yeah. Because ignorance is happiness. Yeah. Because you don't see you don't anything know what else. You don't know, do Whereas you? now I'm quizzing everything in life. I've always been the why guy. Yeah. But like everything, you know, I, I'm like even quizzing myself. Like I do. I'm an ambassador for Dorset Mind, as you know. I do a load of stuff with charity and fundraising and helping people. And I have a battle with myself sometimes. I speak to the guys there and I say, "Am I doing this because I'm genuinely want to help and be a nice guy? Or am I doing it selfishly because of how I feel from helping or how people perceive me yeah. to be?" Because I'm helping others. Yeah. Like. It just blows your mind. You go too deep. You know. So gut intuition. I think life programming from the old man. Yeah. Life lessons. And little things I've seen and hear him do. Definitely have a a feeling. 
a, a gut feeling from inside something's telling me yes i yeah. don't know where that's coming from call it intuition call it experience yeah. call it whatever experience but something is going yes do it yeah i've not really been burnt going on my gut okay my biggest issue and will smith talks about it in his book is i suffer with something called paralysis through analysis yeah you just yeah i'm a massive overthinker and one of the reasons why I'm being so bold and brave in business, I was going to say this earlier, is really what have we got to lose? Yeah. What have we got to lose? Like I've opened a, a new coffee shop and gym, as you know, in the middle of yeah. the pandemic called Rise in, in the Triangle. And it's a massive overlay. I shouldn't have done it. Yeah. I should have recovered from COVID. I'm like strapped up to my eyeballs in debt in that place. Yeah. It's tough. The market's tough. Everything's tough in general. But in my eyes, I think of it like this. I genuinely believe in that project, yeah. so I'm going to do it. Yeah. If it works, fantastic. If it doesn't work, and my missus is always like, how do you stay so calm? Why, do you not, why are you not stressed? And I'm like, I am stressed, but what's stress going to do? Yeah. What does it change? I can only control the controllables. So if that business goes under, I say to her, what have we actually lost? Let's mm. sit down and break it down. My ego's going to hurt. Yeah. My pride's going to hurt. Everyone's going, Ty's failed. Yeah. That's going to hurt a bit. But who really cares about yeah. that in deep down? Yeah. Again, as we will be forgotten, that will be forgotten. Yeah. The other thing is, we're going to lose a ton of money. So we're going to lose a ton of money. We're going to then owe some money. But it's money. It can yeah. be remade. Yeah. It's, There's it's no a, harm to our life. There's no harm to others' lives. That's yeah. really that's important. That's a really important one. They're the two when things. I, and I think some people in business... Don't always comprehend that yeah, one. They don't, you're right. And this is why I'll never have a private jet. Yeah. I'll never be that wealthy. I'll never yeah. be an Elon Musk. Yeah. I don't want to be either. Because you but have I, to, there's a, I don't, this is probably a sweeping statement, but you probably have to get to the point where you are doing that in the detriment and hurting You, you have to be a little bit um, you and, and, and sort of like yeah. blinkers on, to, I feel, yeah. to get above a certain beyond a point of material success. Yeah. I don't think you can get there without the detriment maybe of your wife, your family, your kids, your social life, your mental health, your physical health. The people I want around me, I want them to add value to my life. So if I'm around people, I need to make sure I add value to their life. And I do not mean financially. It's literally the last thing on my mind. It could be positive energy. It could be that, you know that you're bigging them up, you're egging them on, you're yeah. you're correcting them on if they're going off track, if you know their values yeah. and you know, morally and that you're helping them as well. You know, you're adding some value, your network, whatever it might be, you're adding some value to their life. And I, that's what that's kind of what I try and do now. So, you know, I'm not going to promote, if you're around me, you're never going to hear me lead you astray, really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And if I, and you're close to me, I will correct you as well. Yeah. Because we're humans. Yeah. We get caught up. We go down a path that might not be in line with our values. And if you're close to someone, you generally know their values. You know, there's there's your values. There's yeah. their values. Yeah. There's societal norm. There's moral, yeah. moral compass. There's all these. And everyone's got a different version of what that is to them. But you, I feel you have to be able to uh, positively construct people around you. Yeah. And that's also adding value. So if I'm being an absolute knob, yeah, and my mates don't tell me and I look back in six months I actually have a go at next up is a personal friend and at number seven we have Darren Mooney creative director and founder of the design agency Global Brand Communications I've known Darren for quite a while and I've seen him go through both great successes 
but also significant personal and business challenges. He's always been someone with a positive outlook as well as an honest and candid attitude. And it's these traits that shone through during the course of our conversation. Darren spoke with eloquence, humour and vulnerability about his highs and lows and told some great stories about spending part of his childhood in Sweden, the influence of his father and uncle that it had on his ambitions and how he nearly became a professional footballer. The kind of story begins at 16 for me, really, when I had this really difficult choice to make. I was, you know, loved football. I was AFC Bournemouth and, you know, um, and Exit Assist City have just kind of offered me, a, you know, a contract to go down there and, and kind of start my, essentially, what would be like a pro career in football. And um, and I loved it, but I also had a really yearning for, for being a designer um, and, you know, kind of influence from my uncle in America. He had... Um, an amazing life. He he left the UK in the in the kind of late sixties and and just happened to fall into the whole Silicon Valley boom. You know, he was an artist and, and okay. was in a bar in um, in San Francisco. Funny enough, and um, basically he was sat next to a guy who was having a drink and you know the, the classic kind of on a beer mat story. And um, he he ended up designing the first logo for Symantec. Um, on a beer mat in a bar in San Francisco right. and, and then basically they grew and grew and grew and then they recommended him and you know he had an amazing life and and drove an Alfa Romeo over the Golden Gate Bridge every day and um had you know literally you know Steve McQueen bullet wow. was, was his was his offices you know on the middle of the, the hill in San Francisco and he had a beautiful house in the Napa Valley and so I kind of had that as an influence on in my life as well as my dad being a, a pro footballer and wow Thank Two big influences yeah, in an yeah, early stage of your so. life then. Two M- people you were looking up so. to. And- yeah, 100%. You know, and, and, you know, we, me and my brother were were, were kind of influenced both really. And it, my brother ended up going into a different direction. But he, my dad's, you know, football was a very different game back then. And, and you know, yeah. my dad was a great um, a great player he signed for Bournemouth that's why we moved from so London so this was sort of early 90s late yeah 80s, so early 90s. funny enough they've got a reunion at AFC Bournemouth in a, in a couple of weeks for the um, I think it's the 81-82 team okay. where they, they got promotion yeah. um, from the third to the fourth division and, and you know my dad was I think he was in his late 20s then and, and unfortunately broke his leg um, and you know, and, and, and this is where I love him a bit you know and actually it's not until you get a bit older that you realise how brave the decision was but um, the, the kind of English season finished and he was just getting fit at that point to play again and um, he decided to go to Norway and Sweden to get fit you know it was only supposed to be for a, a season um, and we ended up being there two years so I kind of got plucked out of um, junior wow. school so how old were um, you so you're a junior school age. yeah so I was eight years old okay yeah uh, and then kind of literally dropped in a, in a Swedish school where no one spoke English <laughs> and um, they were just learning English thankfully so that made my life a little bit easier when did you start building a team then because up to this point it's you it's Ben you're in this together you're building the business but you know Global soon then gained some momentum, didn't it? And the team grew. So it did, yeah. And and it and it was um it was interesting because I kind of found my feet a little bit and became very confident and, and I loved going out and taking briefs and talking to clients and you know, as most people in the design industry know that it's hard to do that 
and then go back and do the work um you know and present the work and you know because while you're out there there's more work building up and and we made that brave decision that actually it wasn't just going to be me and ben as a partnership anymore that we needed really to take on a designer um and and we did that in holden road um and that was really probably where it became Mm serious as you know as most people that start their own business the minute they become responsible for somebody else's life yeah that kind of changes things it's a wake up call, it really it? is yeah and and you know we we employed a guy called lee he was great um funny enough from one of the businesses that i worked he he'd already left and went somewhere else and we stayed in contact um but yeah the, i remember you know we kind of then had to kind of move to a bigger office and and i remember saying to ben that you know there's no way we can afford 150 quid a month on, on an office you know and Ben was like yeah you know I reckon we can do it you know at this point we weren't getting hardly any wages you know and and, and now we spend that on tea and coffee at Global it's yeah. just it's crazy the kind of I, I remember I never forget it we were sat sat in a cafe in Holdenhurst Road and we just left the office and um and we were looking at the numbers thinking you know can we can we scrape together and commit to um yeah. a year's worth of you know lease for 150 quid a month it's crazy the split between ben and i which happened um coming up about four years ago almost now and 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 that was hard you know ben ben and i had known each other since we were 13 years old started the business together yeah Yeah. 100 percent. and and you know he his his father retired or was you know was going to retire and you know he wanted Mm. him to run the family business which i completely get um and you know Ben stayed as FD of Global for about seven years. Mm. Um, and whilst I appreciated that, it probably kept us um, almost static, you yeah. know, because it was hard to make the decision and, and, and be brave and bold because I had another financial director that I had to yeah. get those decisions through, but also was slightly disconnected from yeah. A, the industry, and B, the business. So. No, clearly, I've got some insight to that. But one of the things I admire about, you know, both from your perspective and Ben's, is how you manage that as a business yeah. partnership. Um, because it's never easy. It's like a it's divorce, isn't yeah. it, effectively? You yeah, know, yeah, it's, 100% it's, it's a commercial divorce. And, and so yeah. if you've got anybody that is going through that process, that is thinking of splitting the business or splitting from their business partner, have got any words of advice for them? yeah don't be afraid of the numbers you know um and it, it probably took us six seven months or it took me six seven months to be brave enough to say look this isn't right i want to buy you out put a number on a table you know yeah. and thankfully we had you in in the middle to to help mediate um but I, it would have happened a lot sooner had i been brave enough to go you know, how much you're looking for? What's so it going to cost? So have that hard question. Yeah, and, Face and it's down hard. the hard yeah. questions early. And, and and that's, you know, same with any any separation or yeah. any, you know, and, and as I say, it is, and, and the, the words I use is I've been through a commercial divorce, you know, yeah. and uh, and that takes its toll on you. It, yeah. It's it's a tough journey. So it's, emotion, it's emotionally draining, isn't it? Because, you, you know, as we said about all of that long-term relationship, it's parted. You yeah. might feel confident that you believe in yourself and you're on your own, but you must have felt for a little bit slightly isolated. A hundred percent, yeah. And and also it's it's quite emotionally and mentally challenging, you know. Um I, I was kind of separating from, from mm-hmm. Kate at the time and I turned forty five and, you know, yeah. I was kind of really evaluating my life at that point and 
you know, I kind of look back on it now and, and, and good friends and, and some not so good friends have told me that I was a mess for probably 18 <laughs> months, you know, and, and you don't see it. You're in it. You're living it. You're looking out thinking I'm all right. But actually everyone's looking at you thinking, you know, this, this guy needs some help. You know, what effect do you think running your own business has had on your personal and family life? It's it's a difficult one because I kind of look back and reflect and 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 any kind of you know entrepreneurial man or woman will, will, will appreciate this that's had a business for a, for you know a period of time is that your your belief and your everything about you is telling you that the business is the most important thing you've got to keep the business going to support your family and you know but actually what you're doing is is actually taking yourself away from that family group and you know hundred percent to my you know, for my situation, it, it had a massive impact on yeah. on me. You know, and and I regret not being around. You know, as much as I should have been for my son, but I actually believed I was doing the right thing and, mm. you know, working hard and you know bringing in the money and and, and all of that stuff. You know, yeah. and but it, it gets to a point where you kind of realise, and I guess it's where I got a bit older, where actually the business isn't priority number one. You know, mm. it needs to sit as priority, kind of you know number one but actually your your health and your personal life need to sit you know exactly alongside that you know and run side by side because if you're not healthy and you're not fit and you're not happy you can't run a happy and healthy and fit business and number six and the last guest for this episode that we're reflecting upon is chloe adams ceo of the art movement, which brings art into offices to enhance the workplace and positively influence the people within it. Chloe's motivation behind the art movement stems from the fact that the average person spends more than a third of their life at work and the office environment has a significant impact on our well-being. She wants to enhance the lives of both office-bound and remote workers through the power of art. Through this, the art movement also supports artists and creative communities and offers art-based activities to install mindfulness, reduce stress, and create connections amongst teams. I found that I loved being around art, I loved being around artists, but I just wanted to get on with the business of something. Um, And I did come away with this feeling that art kind of felt like it wasn't for everyone, it Mm. felt very cliquey. I wanted to find a way to bring art to more people and make it more accessible, you know. Um, The number of times that we'll hang art in a space, we've hung it all up in a a building, and I'll grab someone and say, hey, what do you think of, what do you think of the new art? And they'll go, "Mm, I don't don't really know about, I don't really know anything about (laughs) art. Clearly, I do not want to talk about how I feel about this piece of art. Um, And I'll say to someone, well, look, do you love music? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I love music. I'll say, oh, yeah, I can tell you what I love, what I hate. What general music I like, the bands I'm into, yeah. Exactly. Last gig I went to, all of that stuff. People just, yeah. yeah. I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. And I'll say, do you you know anything about music? Are you qualified in in musical training, anything? Oh, no, God, no. And it's we feel entitled, don't we, to an opinion Mm. about certain things, certain forms of art. And there are others, I think, like visual art, which is much less accessible and people feel very uncomfortable or or not entitled to have an opinion or unqualified and I really didn't like that about art you know I wanted people to go I love it I can't tell you why 
but I just it just it just makes me feel yeah. a certain way, and that's good enough for me. I think that's okay. Yeah. There's this misnomer around, especially now that we have social media, so much you know, heightened sense of comparison, mm. um, and that we think there's like the silver bullet way of achieving anything. And there should be this, is this one thing that I'm going to do? I'm going to find that one thing that's going to make the business yeah. successful. And it's going to be instant. And it's going to be instant. Yeah. And that's going to be that. And I'm not going to make any mistakes along the way. And if I do make a mistake, then it's probably not worth continuing with any of this. Yeah. I'm a complete failure and I'll just go and try something else. And it's like, well, actually, you just have to make friends with that and yeah. understand that you're going to cock up 85% of what you do, but that's going to teach you 100% of what you know. <laughs> so like, how else are you supposed to succeed in anything if you're not willing to look like a bit of a fool yeah, from time to time, mess things up and just laugh at yourself for it because it should be fun. Like it should be fun, yeah. shouldn't it? And have you had to change your business model as a result of the world changing? Do you know, it was a, it was a funny... We had a funny five minutes, didn't we, with with COVID and the the couple of years yeah. that we've had. It this buzzword pivoting, yeah. pivoting businesses pivoting all over the place. But it, you know, I'm a painfully optimistic person. I really, really, really believe in glass half full thinking. And when COVID came along, it was terrifying for everyone for so many reasons but there is always opportunity always opportunity in dark moments and it forced us to think right what can we do now to meet a new need because it's not like there was suddenly people didn't need stuff anymore it's just suddenly very quickly people needed, needed other stuff <laughs> they needed something yeah. they needed it differently yeah. or delivered it in a different way exactly so it, need didn't vanish it just changed and usually it changes at a slower pace and yeah. it changed very quickly. It did. Um, so I think if if you are if you have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, you just turn to meet that and think, okay, what we were doing and doing really well with yesterday, yeah. frustratingly is, is not working for a second. Okay, what can we move towards? Making art reduces your cortisol levels yeah. massively. It's that left left side, right side of brain engagement, which a lot of us in occupations and businesses and professions and just don't engage the right side of our brain in the same creative way as we should as humans do we exactly exactly yeah and we don't um often get into this state of flow which is hugely important you know just to be present and you hear um there's a snowboarder called uh, jeremy jones who talks about the white zone um or it can be state of flow yeah or it can be uh mindfulness or being present however you want to term that it's that place where time is irrelevant you are completely in the zone you are not in the past not in the future and that just brings all your stress levels down it engages that creative part of your soul (laughs) you know that is looking to express itself and it helps to move emotion through you Uh, and I think that I had not realised how powerful that is, especially in the midst of a mental health crisis, which we yeah. are very much in. Yeah, at and the will moment. be for some time. Oh yeah, we've got some serious mm. mending and healing to do. I think. Definitely. Yeah, and art really helps with that. It's a serious 
program that yeah. really is developing people in their creative skill set. So if you want to become a better artist, but you just so happen to be an accountant, yeah. you know, or you just so happen to be uh, somebody working in a recruitment firm, it, like it, art is also for you and it's okay for you to come and take that part of yourself seriously yeah. and for you to develop that seriously. I think people have a really hard time taking their creative self seriously. We want, oh, I'm not an artist. Why do you I'm, think that you know, is? Do you think we leave school and that gets suppressed? I mean, why do you think? Yeah. Is? I think that, unfortunately, I mean, the number of adults I have spoken to who tell me stories about creative shame at school. Some teacher at school laughed at their picture. I was talking to a woman just the other day. She's in her 60s. She was telling me about something that happened to her when she was 10. She was at school, she painted a picture of an aeroplane and her teacher had laughed at her picture in front of the whole class. And she is decades and decades and decades on right. and she remembers that like it was yesterday. Still a scar. And she hasn't drawn since. Yeah. And she hasn't drawn since. And the trauma that has caused, the shame that's then connected to being creative quashes your ability to express that. Mm. And that's happened to so many people. Yeah, absolutely. It's just been the shame and the creativity have come together and it's this nightmarish, horrible, toxic mess that means that people are terrified of judgment when it comes to, to drawing a picture. I've worked with chief executives of very well-known banks who have nervously, I mean nervously, shown their picture at the end of a session. Oh, I think I did the same, <laughs> actually, Chloe, if I'm and why is this scary? School, yeah, but yeah. You know, you're public speaking, you're on camera, you're doing all these yeah. things. Yet if we say, could you please draw us a picture of a dog? Yeah. And would it be okay if we all saw this picture? And we promised to all be very nice about it. The, the cortisol, adrenaline yeah. experience that you have off the back of that is yeah. massive, you know. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please join me next week where we count down the top five podcasts of 2022.